Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Experience the unconventional, Even the unpredictable, What's and the completely unorthodox exactly. with rule-free Ian Lee. The Late Night Alternative with Ian Lee. I've got no internet for the last four days. On talk radio. You've got 40 days to take as much money as you like, starting from now. Mr. Bruce Forsyth, here we go, here we go, he's doing it. Two, keep going, you're doing... You've done it! Yes, man. I've just spent the last four minutes with my guest, who's an American. I think that would be fair to say. It would be quite fair it, to it say. It would be fair to say that Ken Womack is an American, explaining Brexit and Bruce Forsyth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that song, that Bruce Forsyth, <laughs> I'm in charge, produced by George Martin, which is what Ken is here for. But you, um, you, 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 I'm trying to think who your Bruce Forsyth would be. An age-old entertainer that's been around forever and still draws a crowd. Who would that be in America? I'm not sure, but he's, he's kind of of that vintage where he's a personality, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and a proper old-fashioned song and dance kind of guy. Hey, Catherine, is everything all right? What? Okay, you... Why are you whispering? You know that we can still hear you. Ken thinks he's come on a really slick British radio show. And Okay, fine. <laughs> he's not noticed anything. He's not noticed anything. Let's get the names of the books out. You've written two volumes on Sir to you, George Martin. Um, Sound Pictures is the first volume. I'm just looking... No, that's the second volume. 66 to 2016. And Maximum Volume, 26 to 66. Why George Martin? Well, quite simply, I wanted to study the person um, for whom the Beatles imagined all of these wonderful songs, and he was their primary audience, yeah. the guy who got to hear them first, second, perhaps third at worst. He was the fellow to whom they would present these amazing songs. Yeah. You know, what was that like? Uh, and that was the mission of the books, was to try to understand that. And... um. And the Beatles obviously play a huge part, and we're not just going to talk about the Beatles because it's 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 very easy to over to ignore what happened before the Beatles and after the Beatles. There was there was an amazing amount of stuff he was doing either side of the Beatles. <laughs> well, to paraphrase a Beatles movie, they loom large in his legend. <laughs> they do a little bit, um, but he is he is the I would say the one person that can legitimately be called the fifth Beatle. I think so, and um, you know to be. 
very truthful and it's late night radio so i can do that right mm, okay oh, so here it comes honesty is what we i want. mean there were times when he was the second or third beetle yeah yeah um you know given his enthusiasm and passion for whatever project they were working on and simultaneously perhaps the distance that some of the other band members mm. were putting between them and, and certain projects so he he was integral to just about everything they did he is um i never met him i've met um his son uh, Giles Martin, isn't it? Yes. Correct. Yeah, I've met the Giles, who's, who's, who's is delightful and charming. And how weird that he, well, not weird, but that he is carrying on his dad's Beatles connection um, it, with the same, almost the same kind of skills that his dad had. He must, it was, was Giles with him as a young, as a boy watching him do Beatles stuff? And Well, Giles was born in October 1969. Right. And by then the Beatles had decided privately to divorce. Yeah. So, uh, Giles misses the entire phenomenology of the band. But having said that, he was there with his father through the entirety of this kind of Beatles return that occurred slowly. I mean, yeah. they were always popular. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. But but this kind of uh, reformatting that's sort of endless, right? Yeah. The 1987 CDs, <laughs> the 2009 yeah. remasters, and now these remixes um, bringing to life the mm. joke that Tommy Lee Jones makes in Men in Black that he's just going to keep buying the White <laughs> Album for the rest <laughs> of his life. Well, we're going to buy... I've, I've got a, an order in for the box set of the White Album in November. That's right. You're buying it now. Yep. So it's it's all very true. I don't think Giles intended to do this, right. but uh, it was a quite a natural production offshoot for him mm. and uh, an opportunity to carry on a great le- legacy, which he has done, I think, to a T. Oh, incredibly so. How easy was it to find out about George Martin stuff that wasn't Beatles related. Quite difficult. Yeah. Um, you know, so many of the witnesses, and this is my fault for starting the project so late, uh, had passed on. Yeah, yeah. Um, George himself, when I began working on this, was deaf uh, and uh, not feeling so well. I mean, he had some several long, long-running illnesses. So uh, putting it together was quite difficult. You know, the Beatles material is out there. I did manage to find a few, few new nuggets here and there mm. to pepper throughout that story. Pepper. Well done. Well Pun done. intended. Excellent stuff. Um, thank you very much. Um, but uh, beyond that... I was desperately trying to think of another Beatles pun I could throw in there, and I, and I failed miserably. Well, we will come together on those later. Oh, and, uh, oh, man. I wish I had my revolver with me. That's, oh. a, bit, that's a bit mean. That's a yeah, says, I'm going to shoot you. Yeah, I'm don't gonna... get violent. No, this is not that kind of show. No, no, no. This is the opposite <laughs> of those kinds of shows. Exactly. Well yeah. done. You've done your homework. Thank you. Um, so did you get to speak to him? I did all? not. No. Um, I immediately wrote to him once I had the, uh, the contract, and... Uh, his his wonderful um, agent, Adam, wrote me back and said, George is delighted, you know, that folks are working on projects like this, but he won't be available. OK. And of course, I knew he wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, again, but it was it was nice to reach out to him. OK. Well, you got kind of a blessing from him. Sure. Then. Although it's you know, it's <coughs> not an authorized biography. No. And that's such a tainted, tangled oh, phrase, no, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. You know, it used to mean something in like the 60s and 70s. Yeah. It's the authorized biography. Now it means all the dr- the drugs and sex have been cut out. Right, right. Nobody wants that no, book. No, no. Want, I want the unauthorized Albert Goldman v- book to, uh, to <laughs> spill the dirt. Um, one of my favorite George Martin clips ever is a wonder. He did a wonderful series, I guess in the late 90s for the BBC, about music. And he interviewed people like Billy Joel. And there's a great bit where he... I'm a huge Beach Boys fan. And he sat with Brian Wilson um, at the, the, the mixing desk. And they're listening to the master tapes of God Only Knows. <laughs> and George goes, well, I've always 
I've always wished I could have produced this. And he starts playing around with it and just, you know, adding some of this and taking some of that. And Brian Wilson sits there and goes, oh, my God, that's that's better than what I did. And it's just such a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful moment. And the thing about George Martin is he's a proper old-fashioned gentleman, isn't he? And the truth is he's very gentle, very polite, very, very well-mannered. And Is that what you, you got from the people that you spoke to? That is, I think that's largely true. Of course, you know, George's life was a, the story of social climbing yeah. in a lot, a lot of ways. You know, he was born very humble origins, the most humble of all the of the Beatles, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, it was only later when he self-consciously, as so many other veterans did, changed his accent to tailor himself yeah. to a, a new life, which he developed stupendously. Uh, but I think he really was that. Um, I would often ask my interview subjects, you know, was there a time when George let you see behind the veneer? And really only two or three times did anybody say, yeah, he kind of lost it. Um, oh wow! Really? Sure, and and he ra- but he rarely did. Yeah, um, yeah. And it had less to do with the fact that he didn't have a bad temper. I think he had the same temper we all do. Yeah. Uh, but rather that he was a great politician, mm. which is how he would negotiate the um, the ebb and tide of the Beatles' waves of furor over those those very tendentious but mm. wonderful years. And it was that great that great political sense that he had that made him so effective inside mm. that political calculus. How did it... Well, we lost, uh, of course, Jeff Emmerich last week or the week before. You know, the, the 72, I think he was, Jeff I think he was 74. 74. No, you're absolutely right. He was 72. Okay. He would have been 73 in December. Um, was, in fact, he was coming to our university mm. uh, next month, and he'd been very excited. This is of, in Jersey. Right. He was... Uh, I'm dean at uh, the Monmouth University, yep. in the Wayne D. McMurray School of Humanities and Social Sciences, and Jeff was coming to sort of close out a symposium. Wow. Wow. we're doing on the White Album. Yeah. And uh, he was very excited uh, to come in and be a part of, you know, college life and, and, and yeah. be a part of something that was intellectual. And it was... It was... Smoke a few reefers again, pretend it's the 60s, you know. <laughs> he, he was very excited. And it, I was, bet a, was. it was a shame. He was, it was something special, I think, we were creeping What toward. was the relationship between Jeff Emmerich and George Martin? Well, it was essential. Um, George was always the right guy for the Beatles. Uh, and like Brian Epstein and like the Beatles themselves, they all came at the industry in a kind of sideways manner. You know, Brian Epstein wasn't really a manager. He he failed at everything he'd ever done, and he decides he's going to be a manager. So he's coming at the industry. The Beatles, well, they're from Liverpool. That's not going to work. And George Martin is faking it as a producer. (laughs) And they're all hurtling toward this industry, and they disrupt it. And Jeff really fit that mold, too. Right. Um, He gets his job. I guess his dad wanted him out of the house. He wrote a letter to EMI and said, my son could be an engineer. (laughs) And Jeff was 15 or something. And they said, well, I guess he could. We'll pay him no money. And um, incredible. Yeah. And so Jeff got into the business in a sort of sideways fashion too he was from crouch end oh and i lived in crouch End. well there you go you kind of know the emmerich uh you know uh firmament i suppose in any event um they were they were great together george had gotten to the point where uh he needed uh, an engineer with a little bit more vision because george was no techie you know he didn't know how to he could work the faders but he was more of a classical guy okay you know he he would say i'm very 12 inch you know he was more 78 than 45 rpm and so jeff being a younger guy and a guy who knew how his way around a soldering iron i guess yeah (laughs) uh was was perfect for him and and that's when 
It timed out perfectly with Revolver and Sgt. Pepper. And would, would, would Jeff been one of... I love the fact that when the Beatles started recording at EMI, the, the engineers still wore the white lab coats, and it was still a very scientific... You know, it was a pro- it was a process that you had it's to go quite through. Quite formal, yeah. You had an apprenticeship. You would be, um, you know, you'd come in as a lacquer cutter and then a tape operator, yeah. and you know, maybe then you'd be second engineer, and then finally first engineer, and then a full fledged producer. There was this whole kind of apprenticeship. There's a famous story in 1940. Winston Churchill went to Abbey Road, which of course was then EMI Studios. And they were making propaganda recordings for the war. Of course. And uh, there's there's old Winnie, and uh, he he sees all these white coated you know fellows and he's like wow have i died am i in the hospital (laughs) (laughs) you know he thought it was ridiculous well it it is to have such a scientific you know now we consider music an art form of course it wasn't an art form and you're you're right george martin was integral to the beatles The, the, the the few times he took his hands off of the reins of the beatles it suffered i'm thinking of of uh the whole let it be album which i like but it you it doesn't sound right. It's muddy, and it doesn't you know it, it, Phil Spector's hands over it, and also things like the string arrangements on "She's Leaving Home," which was Mike Leander, I think, <laughs> which is this big, huge kind of, I think, over the top, slightly um, uh, offensive kind of or, <laughs> you do orchestral background backing. Whereas was with George with the Beatles was was kind of small and tiny. These wonderful scorings that he did. He he made you know his his ability to interpret ridiculous ideas like john lennon saying i want 10,000 chanting monks or whatever <laughs> it was his ability to translate that is genius is as much a genius as lennon and mccartney's songwriting skills i think anyway oh absolutely and and you know george would disappear as a producer into the recording mm. so in other words it wouldn't have any kind of trademark feel like like you said phil specter with his wall of sound or or contemporarily uh Je- jeff lynn right oh. every jeff lynn oh. recording and some of them are wonderful some of them are not yeah. but they all have a certain sheen to them they there's s- a certain they sound like jeff lynn they do they sound like jeff lynn and you know that's a shame when you're listening to tom petty you really want to hear tom petty yeah when you but- hear free as bird i want to hear i don't want to hear an elo song this is what i'm hearing right know. and it's not even good mid or early elo no. it's, <laughs> it's late period shine a little love don't yeah. bring me down yeah yeah <laughs> that's bringing you down uh elo and it, it, you know george would disappear into a recording and that that was his magic yeah. was his superpowers being un- able to understand what they wanted and then to d- d- sort of d- disappear into that the that, worst that. things the beatles ever did Mainly in their solo career was was pair up with uh, Phil Spector and Jeff Lynne. I just you just want to hear those George those John albums without the twenty five drummers and sixteen saxophones. <laughs> we'll take a quick break. I've got Ken Womack here. He's written two uh, a two volume biography of George Martin. I'm going to tweet the links in a little bit, guys. Uh, all the usual places. We'll give out his website as well. If you've got any questions, we, we don't we, we won't be talking solely about the Beatles. I know that some people get this, Ken. Some people don't like the Beatles. I no, mean, there's no such thing. It's like it's like disliking children or Christmas. You or can't something. do it. But there's some people who listen to this show who hate the Beatles right now. They're listening. That was switched off. Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Dial up some dialogue. Talk Radio. We'll get you talking. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Excuse me. Oh, Dad. Just... Hello, I'm Martin Kellner. And I'm his daughter, Ruthie. We do a podcast. It's called Ruthie, Me and My Dad. In which I tell him how he's wrong about most things. And I explain to her who the Bee Gees were. It's on Acast and Apple Podcasts. And all your favourite podcast providers. It's a unique generation gap conversation between a baby boomer dad... And his Generation Z daughter. That's Ruthie, Me and My Dad. Brand new episodes every Thursday. Unmissable late night radio with the original king of unconventional conversation. Make contact with Ian Lee. The late night alternative with Ian Lee on Talk Radio. Two volumes about George Martin. Some of you will be going, oh my God. Some of you will be salivating hard at the prospect. Maximum volume and sound pictures by Ken Womack. We're going to tweet the links. Last Beatles thing, and then we're going to talk about other stuff. Ken, we, we just, I was just saying that the, uh, up until Revolver, that in America, listening to the Beatles was a different experience than it was for people in the UK because you had different albums because um, it, was, it was capital, wasn't it? Thought, hey, instead of putting 12, 14 songs on an album, if we put 10 or 11, then we can save some of these other songs and <laughs> put them out as EP. So, so they were different albums. And I've got, this is my theory that no one else has, has ever picked up on. When Brian Wilson talks about how his inspiration for Pet Sounds was Rubber Soul, he was listening to a different Rubber Soul. He wasn't listening to the Rubber Soul that I would know. He was listening to the American Rubber Soul, which is kind of a folk album. It's an acoustic album. And you could see how that would shape Pet Sounds and be a driving force for him because the American version is more of a kind of concept in sound, I think. No, absolutely. And uh, I, frankly, I was one of the people who was duped by this. You know, when I would go to the record stores in the late 70s and I would look into the bins, these are the records I bought. So for many years, uh, as a young guy, I thought, well, that's what Rubber Soul was. That's what Revolver was. And and you're absolutely right. The the album that, um, you know, that that the Beach Boys and and Brian in particular was consuming was very different. And it had a, a completely different tonality. And Damn Capital, by the way, we can say that uh, they're no longer uh, an EMI subsidiary. Um, you know, for for manipulating their sound in that way, yeah. it was only with Sgt. Pepper that they had the the sort of cultural or I suppose financial power to say put these albums out the right way. And it seems incredible now that um, 
the record label would have that much influence. They're not just for one or two. For the first five, six albums, however many it is, they're, they're going to go, no, we, we, OK, you've got, you want to make an artistic statement, but, but we're the money men. We're going to take bits and pieces. Let's move away from the Beatles, because I can, I can otherwise we're here until one o'clock. But the hard salivators will, no? <laughs> they'll, they'll still be salivating okay, hard. OK, good, they, good. It turns out they salivate hard, whatever. Um, <laughs> give us George Martin's background, because you, 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 you're right. He, was, he kind of changed himself to fit in. And, and the, the later George Martin was a very tall, very slim, him, very elegant. Well, he's very, always tall. Very, he's always tall. <laughs> but very, we would consider him to be a very posh English gentleman. But that wasn't how he started, was he? No, no. He was born in North London uh, in uh, very impoverished surroundings. Mm. He and his uh, sister fought over a single gas jet around the fireplace. Wow. They had no electricity, no running water. They born into the Depression. His father was a master carpenter, which wasn't a great time to be a master carpenter, of course, because nobody was doing any fine woodwork yeah. to speak of. Uh, his mother would hustle uh, as a, doing knitting on the side, and later they took in orphans, many, many orphans. Wow. And, and by the time George gets to the war years, he just wants out of that household. Yeah. Uh, there were so many orphans living there. They were getting stipends from the government. Uh, George could not wait to get to war, but he got to a good war because by then, it's 1944, it was yeah. essentially over. Yeah. Um, and during the war, um, he was a man of uh, natural leadership ability, and he was sent to officer's training. And while there, he would listen to the, the posh, cut-glass voices of the well-bred officers in training. And they would have these marvelous meals not far from here in Greenwich. Mm. Um, and they would uh, George would notice that they knew how to use the right hand for the knife and fork. And they put their napkin in their lap, and they sounded great. And he thought, that's what I'm going to be. Isn't that interesting? That he, he, but he was hardly the only one. No, of, oh, of course, of course. But, but, okay, well, then how did he make the transition from that into working in music? What was, what was, was his... A single guy. Now, George was always a pretty good scratch pianist, um, but he caught the attention of a fellow named uh, Sidney Harrison, and mm. George called him his fairy godfather. And Sidney is probably why we have the great sound of the Beatles. I know we weren't going to talk about them. <laughs> But uh, anymore, but but there it is. It's impossible not to keep nodding. To it the is yes. I think it? the hard salivators will be excited yeah. about Sidney Harrison. Yeah. So Sidney is uh, very influential. Mm. He's a professor at the Guildhall School, and uh, he carries on this correspondence during the war with George. He helps him work out how to do notation and those sorts of things because George is not good at it. And it as in musical notation. That's right. And he taught himself then, did he, with the help of this? With the help of Sidney Harrison. After the war, uh, George has no plans, and Sidney says, well, you should go to the Guildhall School. And George rightly says, I'll never get in. Yeah. Are you kidding? I'll have to have an audition. And Sidney says, no, you won't. And sure enough, George goes to the Guildhall School, and Sidney strikes one more time with his, I guess, his fairy godfather-ish wand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in 1950, when George finishes his coursework, uh, again, no prospects. Sidney says, there's a job for you if you want to go uh, interview with a guy named Oscar Preuss. And mm. Preuss was head of the third label at EMI, Parlophone. Parlophone. And he needed an assistant. Um, the job was killing him. Parlophone was in desperate, dire straits. Yeah. So George put on his... Fleet our air arm greatcoat and rode across London and walked right into Judy Lockhart Smith, who would figure very largely yeah. in his story later. And Oscar said, you're on. Wow. And How old would he have been at that point? He would have been 1950. He is um, 24. Okay. Okay. So a young man. 12 years later, when he meets the Beatles, there they are again. He is 36, and they think he's the oldest yeah. man in the world. But of course, by then... 
He is posh. Well, he and is posh by then. And by, by then, he's learnt so many of the skills. This is why I think the pairing of the Beatles with, with, with him was, was so fortuitous. Everything was aligning. Because when Lennon says, I want 10,000 chanting monks, George Martin had had a decade of doing ridiculous, silly, <laughs> dumb comedy records. That's right. That were amazing. That weren't just, OK, well, we're going to record an orchestra or we're going to record a jazz group. It's like Peter Sellers... Creating or Spike Milligan or, or, or Michael Bentig, creating these ridiculous worlds and kind of saying to him, right, well, well, can you can you put me in this betting shop? Can you put me in this? You know, <laughs> can you create these environments? And that was George's favorite thing to do. Really, he saw the studio as this kind of magic workshop. He was pushing for that almost from the beginning of mm. his work there, uh, even before he was head of the label. He really wanted to create ambiance in the studio. Mm. And, of course, the Beatles have great ambiance, yeah. right? Rocky Raccoon, you feel like you're in a saloon, yeah, yeah. that you're going to get shot. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's all very, very real, and, and George was fantastic at creating setting. And it, it was, uh, in many ways, his superpower. How did he get paired up, then, with the comedians? These, these, these making these comedy records purely out of necessity. Yeah. Um, when George takes over in the mid 1950s, and Preuss is retiring. In fact, Preuss dies within a year after retiring. Of course, he does. It's often the way. It is. It's yeah. a. It's Never a, it's, stop moving. It's a cliche, isn't yeah. it? So, in any event, uh, but but they had become great friends, and Preuss was very instrumental uh, in making sure George was his successor at Labelhead. But when when he became Labelhead, uh, Preuss said, "Look." You know, they want to mothball this label. Mm. You better get it together. And George was looking for a way to save Parlophone. And it was comedy that did it. Mm. Who was the first who was the first one he would have worked? Was it was it wouldn't have been Sellers, would it? Peter no, Sellers? no, no. Sellers came came along pretty quickly, but he was doing a lot of live mobile work. Right. Okay. And so he would uh, you know, he'd go out and do Beyond the Fringe, oh, right? Or course. or things like that. And there were several different um Several di- different uh, groups and teams he worked with, and he really brought that to life. And yeah. it was kind of a phenomenon, right? Here he is, the live hookup, the live recording, and now it's in your home. Parlophone yeah. presents. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, uh, nowadays, you can go and record a live concert with a tiny little box. I'm, I'm imagining then it was a big old rig that would take a team to assemble. Sure. They had a mobile unit. Now... By the time he starts to do that with, with Sekoman Wise and those guys, it's it's become a lot more professional. When he starts, true story, in 1950, one of his first assignments was to go up to Scotland and yeah. record these Dixieland jazz bands who would record in the back of a church or a school. Yeah. George would drive up in the EMI van, and they didn't have tape. So what they would do is they'd have a microphone, and you know it would be rigged out to the van, and George would cut straight to disc. No! Yes. Oh, man! And so here's how it would work. They'd have a stack of discs at the end of the day. It'd be like a Saturday or something. Yeah. All these bands would line up and record their best song. George wouldn't even listen to them. He'd get in the van and he'd drive all the way back to London. They'd play the disc, see if any of them were any good, and that's what was released. No wonder they were in trouble. That is incredible. And again, I'm going to say the B word. Again, that if he's doing it like that, that explains... How, you know, the first Beatles album was recorded in like a day or something, 12 hours or That's something, right. wasn't it? The, 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 so many of those, the, the, sometimes in a three-hour session, they'd record two, you know, an A side and a B side. Because I guess if he's doing what you were saying he was doing, you've got to be quick 
You can't you can't mess around. It's like we've got this time. We've got to do this now. Obviously, that changed towards the end of the sixties when maybe people started spending too much time on records. <laughs> you know, and, and now it takes like two years, three years to record an album. Come on, man! It's twelve songs. Just go in and do it. <laughs> but but then it, it, that that speed was a necessity. Oh, it absolutely was. And of course, by the time Beatlemania sets and mm. uh arises rather in yeah. both the uk and the us he has so little time with them when they get together they yeah. got to do it there's a session in uh mid-1965 in the same day they record i'm down i've just seen a face and yesterday <laughs> save for the strings yeah. all in one day yeah it's amazing what they'll churn through yeah fortunately they were that good yeah so they were able to do it um, funny you mentioned yesterday. It's one of my least favorite Beatles songs, and I've just been—I've just recorded a podcast um, which di- di- discusses Beatles albums and solo albums, and I picked "Give My Regards to Broad Street," <laughs> but kind of for a perverse reason. But also, I think the version of "Yesterday" on, on there is actually nicer. I prefer the brass. Huh. I, I know controversial. Wow! Um, but that was produced by. I that, wonder what the hard salivators yeah. are thinking now. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that's going to kick off. But that whole album was produced by George Martin. And after, what I find interesting about the Beatles is after, when, when it's, they split, they kind of turned their back on what they had done before. They turned their back for a bit on EMI, and uh, on Abbey Road, certainly on George Martin. And John Lennon would later go on and slag him off. <laughs> over and over. Oh, yeah. or, or, you know, and say that he ruined Strawberry Fields and that he wanted to re-record all of those songs because Martin ruined it. I suspect had John lived a few years more he would have taken that back. He's a guy who never gets to be 41. He barely gets he, to be 40. Yeah. Um, but he did, you know, he made up with George in December 1979. Oh, they, did he? John, uh, George came over. He was in New York. John oh. said, come over. Yoko, as George later remembered, made herself scarce. Yeah. And uh, they had a great evening together. And that was the evening where he said he'd re-record everything. Oh. <laughs> and and George was offended but then he thought, you know what? That's just John. Yeah, yeah. The world can never be as great as it is in his mm. imagination. Mm. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. He would have come around on that. He also he apologized during that dinner. And he said, look, when I said all those things, I was whacked out of my <laughs> mind. Um, and, you know, George had kind of figured that. Yeah. And they had a great last evening together. But it's, I think, I think the, the McCartney's best solo stuff is with George Martin. It's tug of war. Tug of war. Pipes of peace. But tug of war die. is the you know is the the best record. Yeah, by a mile. Yeah, definitely it's with lo- George Martin. What did was George? Was he reluctant to get back when Paul kind of clicked his fingers, or was he was he eager Not at to all. dive in? No, and and you know I I do have a, a feeling, and I, I suggest this in in sound pictures. I do believe he had a lot to do with Wings breaking up. Right. Um, George thought Paul was better than that band. Yeah. Linda would have agreed. She thought he was always playing with musicians who weren't quite up to his caliber. Uh, he has a great road band now that that probably is far more in line. I think Linda would be happy with this mm. group. Uh, but he, you know, George felt like Paul was underplaying his hand and helped him along. Mm. The, the reason why they worked well, at least initially, so well together, is George was probably the one guy who could say to Paul in the whole world, hey, that's a bad idea. This is the thing. This is the thing that is lacking in Paul McCartney's solo career, is someone saying, you can do better than that. Sure. And, uh, and, and Martin could do it. Sure. And, and Lennon and McCartney not working together, that works for a little bit. There are yeah. some great songs they come out of the gate with. But, of course, they're closer to the end of the Beatles. Yeah. Well, a lot of them were, were Beatles leftovers that sure. didn't get used. Right. Maybe I'm Amazed is essentially a Beatles yeah. song. Imagine. Yeah. You know, these songs, Instant Karma. Yeah. Um, and Ringo and the same thing with all, all Things Must Pass. 
But, you know, the longer they get away from each other, they needed that person who could edit them and, mm. and tell them, you know, what's what in a brutal but still loving fashion. After the Beatles, <coughs> excuse me, Martin had... We all need that kind of person. We do. I've got, I've got Kath. She tells me what I'm doing badly. She tells, tells me quite often. There we go. Uh, look, she's, look. That was a thumbs down. <laughs> she gave a thumbs down. Uh, the hard salivators can't see this at home, but there was a thumbs down. Well, I've got to say, Ken, it's been nice meeting you, but the boss has spoken. Get out. Well, I thought that was for you. No, I, 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 I get know. to stay, right? You get to stay. I get to go. I got the thumbs up. But he did, and he did have, he did produce some great stuff. We had Jimmy Webb on the show. He produced sure. um, uh, Mirage, I think, was the album. Can't quite remember. Um, which is a, which is a lush album. And I said, to, we said to Jimmy Webb, "How did you feel about working with George?" He says, "Do you know what? I was so proud, but I feel guilty because I was taking a lot of cocaine, and I wasn't. <laughs> I didn't give George Martin the best that he deserved. And he felt that he'd let George. You know, forty years later, he still felt he'd let George Martin down by not giving him what he deserved. Did how did he did do some great stuff after the Beatles, but." Nothing ever as big. There were hits and there were some great albums. How did he feel, do you think, about his career, sort of 1970 onwards, the musical career? Did he feel disappointed? Did he feel that the Beatles were kind of a weight around his neck that he couldn't shake off? None of those things. You know, Giles likes to, his son, likes to say that George never looked back. And that's very true. Wow. He just didn't do it. Yeah. He was so forward thinking. Um, He had as we all do, a set of grievances that he would return to occasionally in his own psyche and, and get riled up about, but then he would push them back again. And, and many of them were with EMI, quite right. frankly. But he didn't look back. He was, like I think like all of us, he's looking for that next great experience. And did it happen? Probably not. He understood the weight of the Beatles and how important they were. Yeah. Um, and he spent much of the remainder of his life trying to you know, make sure that that legacy was protected and honored. And he did a damn good job of that. Uh, But having said that, you know, he was always looking for the next big thing. Did he find it? I don't know. I mean, he uh, he does some great work with America. He helps them right their ship. As you said, he does some great work with with Paul McCartney. I think he makes Jeff uh, Jeff Beck's greatest album, Diamond Dust. Uh, But, you know, beyond that, um, he never returns to that lofty space but neither do they no they truly were the sum of their parts john paul george ringo and george yeah and uh i think they're all diminished without each other even in their finest moments there's always <coughs> something sort of not there i wonder what pete best would say about george martin i'm i miss pete best i, I do think that paul mccartney ringo Starr, and pete best should try and reform the Beatles in some... They're the three remaining Beatles. Let's get those guys back together and do a tour. I was I was talking to Ken Townsend recently. He gave uh, my wife and I a lovely tour of the studio. And, you know, he was the oh, manager wow, yeah. for many, many years and um, just a great person and, and, you know, a true pioneer in, in British, if not world, recording. Yeah. And uh, I was asking him about the first time he met them. And he starts to tell the story about, um, you know, fixing Paul's amp and all of this stuff in June 1962. But then he looked at us and he said, wow, you know, I'm one of the only people alive. <laughs> Let's see, Paul's still alive and Pete is still alive. And that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of it. Um, I, George Martin never had anything against Pete. No. You know, he just thought he wasn't up for recordings. He said, keep him as a live yeah. player. Who cares? Yeah. You know, he's good looking. Why yeah. not? Um, it's just... Uh, 
and Jimmy Nickel. Let's get Jimmy Nickel in, the, the drummer that replaced B, uh, Ringo oh, for the poor Australian. poor Jimmy. I think Jimmy's in South America now. Jimmy's disappeared. There's a great book that came out about him. Yeah, my friend ago. Jim Birkenstock wrote it. Oh, and, did he? Yeah, yeah. Oh, and well, G- tell, him, tell him I thoroughly enjoyed it. That was a great read. I'm sure he's listening now. Oh, well, he's a hard it. salivator. Uh, okay, good. I loved it. Of course, I'll bring I'll bring him back next oh, time I come. Oh, please do, because because Jimmy's because I'd love to get Jimmy Nickel on the show, but he's just disappeared, isn't he? He doesn't. He's want in any South part America. Of it. I think him. if this could be the show that brings him back. Oh man, I want Jimmy Nickel on this show. That's right. Um, There's a quest worth striving for. <laughs> Ken, it's so nice to talk to you. How long did it, th- th- these are two very mighty tomes? How long did it take you to to put these together? About four years. Wow. Yeah, but you know, like like most of us. Uh, Beatles people. I was thinking about it for most of my life. Who's um, his name? And I know that you know him. His name's escaped me. We've had him on the show. The guy that, um, oh, Mark Lewison. Thank you very much. You're indeed. welcome. Thank you. I couldn't watch you no, strain anymore. Thank was... you. We've, I went to his house, and I mean, your book, your books are, are, are detailed, but Mark Lewison. <laughs> He, that guy takes the takes the piss is the phrase we have over here. He's the, that book, which is the, the, the it's a million words. Oh, that's <laughs> ridiculous, but it's wonderful. But I read a great tweet about it. For those who don't know, he's writing three volumes. He'll never finish them. Um, they're going about. He he said to me himself, he doubts he'll finish them. He doesn't think he'll be around well, long. I took enough. him to lunch last summer. Yeah. And Mark, if you're listening, you need to watch this. <laughs> he said to me, he, he had like think. a giant steak and a beer. Come on, he needs, he needs to, to. He needs to be on a strict vegetarian diet. A lot of people are yeah. counting on that book. He, excuse me, those books. Those books. A friend of mine tweeted um, when that book came out. I'm on page 876, and I don't know much about the Beatles, but I know that Ringo's granddad stole a top hat once, and it's just <laughs> that's the detail it goes into. Well, you know, Marcus, and you know this from knowing him. He's extraordinary. Oh, he's and incredible. He man. is. Uh, um, I think he's courageous. He, in yeah. fact, he invented in many ways the kind of analysis that we do with his Great Beatles Recording Sessions yeah. book. Those uh, books are really common now, where it's a day by day. This is what happened, kind of thing. He was but the first his one to do is it. The master class, yeah, in yeah, it. yeah, and he did it very well. And frankly, without that, a lot of scholarship, the important kind of historical work that needed to be yeah. done would probably have been lost at a certain point. All it took was one fire. Uh, in fact, at a certain point, not long after that, EMI almost went under. Yeah. And uh, our EMI Studios, Abbey Road, might have been a car park. Yeah, could have so, been. you know, what Mark did uh, is absolutely heroic. Uh, he's one, you know, we all have our heroes, mm. and he's one of mine. Oh, he's a, he's, he's a lovely man, but... He ain't going to finish those books. I don't. Oh, well, he might if he goes vegan. This, this, this. I'm just saying this so it gives him a kick up the ass. So, so in other words, it. you're helping him. Yeah, yeah. This is this, this. is coaching. This is it. Um, Ken, it's so nice to meet you. Ken Womack, W O M A C K. Uh, loads of Beatles books, but the, the 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 new books are the George Martin biographies, uh, Maximum Volume, and Sound Pictures. Um, there are t- now you've got two versions. One kind of the more weightier kind of serious pictures and one with the colors and the um... would, you, would you like me to comment on that yeah go on. george martin wearing shorts i'd like comments on that. okay yes now when i first debuted that photo on facebook yeah uh this this one uh facebook friend of mine said wait why are you putting george naked uh, she thought he was wearing underwear <laughs> he's in the caribbean yes that's what you wear he said it's, it's volume two sound pictures um the american versions have these flashy photos of yeah. george sitting at mixing desks of course, for the, the british yeah. um you you can see there look like records and actually the sides uh the publisher designed them to look like those old penguin books yeah yeah they're quite lovely. Oh, because we can read. But, country. you know, I, I think the hard salivators should buy all four. <laughs> 
two is not enough for them. You know there are completists that will actually do that. You know that there are people that will do that. And I exist to help them. on their I exist to help them do it. So nice to meet you. You're back back home tomorrow to... um, Suck up to Bruce Springsteen. Is that correct? That's right. Back to uh, the Jersey Shore. Well, uh, where we're actually we're planning a big white album symposium. Hopefully, the hard salivators will register and be there in November. Can't wait for that white album to come out. Yeah. Although, when are they? You gonna... should do like a live hookup from from New Jersey, dude. I'm, I'm there. Do you think Kathy would? Yeah, yeah, we'll do, we're there. She's nodding. Uh, do you know what? We'll send her over there. Did, she can be. Can the... Ian go? No, oh, Ian can't go. But you can do the live. Hookup. When are they going to? They... I'll do the hookup. I'm the DJ. I'm, so I'm out of a job. He's just taught me out of no, a no, job. This you is can, ridiculous. You can engineer it. I'll go out for dinner with your missus. You can do this. When are they going to do the 10-disc ten ten version of Revolver? That's all I'm interested in. We all want that, ten right? Disc, I, want, I want a whole disc of Yellow Submarine outtakes. And you know where Apple keeps going wrong? Go they misjudge us as the hard salivators. We yeah. would spend thousands of oh, pounds... Mate. I would probably pay a monthly fee to have access to everything. Oh, God. Not to download, but just to listen to. Totally. Are you listening, Jeff Jones, at Apple? It's... You would make money off of me. I would spend twice as much well, as the, Netflix the for Dylan, access. The Dylan box sets, well, the, the last one was like six, seven hundred pounds. Yeah, they for... should, but they should quit making those available as box sets yep. and just have us lease them every month. We're so used to it. We do our Netflix payments. Come we on. do our Amazon Ken, Prime. You must have some tasty bootlegs floating around. Send, send them over. Send me over your, your dodgy discs and we'll never hear any more of it again, I promise. Okay, that's it. So nice to meet you, Ken. Have a safe journey back tomorrow. Lovely to meet your wife as well. Um, 0344 The books... George Martin, Maximum Volume Sound Pictures. Twitter, where, where, where should people go on Twitter to find you and harass I'm, you? I'm at my name, Kenneth A. Womack. There you go, you see, and kennethwomack.com. Nice to meet you. This is The Late Night Alternative with me and Lee on Talk Radio. Across the UK, online and on DAB. A radio star is born. You're going to love Talk Radio. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.